This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. Each week you'll hear world-leading scientists and experts talking about the most fascinating ideas in science and technology today. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. According to the World Health Organization, dementia currently affects an estimated 55 million people worldwide. But despite its prevalence, there's still very little in the way of treatments. In this episode, we catch up with Tara Spires-Jones, Professor at the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Edinburgh and President of the British Neuroscience Association. She tells us all about the different types of dementia, how they progress and what the latest thinking is on how we can beat the disease once and for all. Let's kick off first with looking into what we are talking about when we talk about dementia, because it's not a a single disease, is it? That's exactly right. So dementia is the umbrella term for a set of symptoms that people experience. And you've probably met someone with dementia. Most people have because it's so prevalent. But the symptoms are this progressive loss of cognitive function. So it often starts with memory impairments, sort of forgetting where you left things or some spatial memory, like where you parked the car. But eventually, the diseases that cause dementia spread through the brain and more and more cognitive functions are impaired. So at the end stage, it's really actually very sad. At the end stage, you can't move or talk or, of course, recognize your loved ones. So let's have a look at the different types then, because I think a lot of people may have heard of Alzheimer's or perhaps of vascular dementia. But there's also frontotemporal dementia and things like this. So can you go through those and tell us what the difference is and um, you know how common they are in relation to one another? 
Yes, I mean, it depends on how much time you have. I have lectures of hours worth of the different kinds of dementias. But those core set of symptoms that we were just talking about of this cognitive decline can be caused by lots of different underlying pathologies in the brain. As you mentioned, the most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. It's thought to account for over half, approximately 60% of people with dementias will have underlying Alzheimer's disease pathology. I should say that these exact numbers aren't always agreed in the field because the human brain is amazing and wonderful and messy, right? So you can have Alzheimer's-like pathology, but you can also have vascular pathology. So you also mentioned vascular dementia, which is a type of dementia that's caused by changes in the blood vessels in your brain or damage to them. There are frontotemporal dementias, which all on their own are quite complex because there are lots of different subtypes of this, but the frontotemporal means that the frontal part of your brain and the temporal part of your brain are degenerating, and that causes symptoms that are a little bit distinct from more classical Alzheimer's symptoms. So Alzheimer's disease starts in the part of the brain really important for memory in the medial temporal lobe, but in frontotemporal dementias, that frontal part especially, that's the part of your brain that controls your behavior and your inhibitions. So you can have some very difficult behavioral symptoms with frontotemporal dementia. People can change personality and, and sort of say things that they wouldn't have normally said, and that's really the underlying disease. So let's see, what else have we got? Dementia with Lewy bodies is another type of dementia, and that's very closely related to Parkinson's disease because the same kind of pathological protein clumps up in the brains in both Parkinson's and dementia with Lewy bodies. But there are, I mean, the, the list of diseases that can cause dementia are, is very long. So you can have something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a disease caused by, they used to call it dementia pugilistica. So that's when you boxers would get dementia from head trauma, for example. So I won't go through all of them because I think we could be our full half hour talking about all the different clinical manifestations of different dementias. What are some early warning signs then that people should be looking out for in themselves and in their friends and family members? That's a tough one because most of us as we age will undergo age-related changes in our cognitive abilities that are not caused by one of these diseases that will progress into dementias. So typically early signs of dementias are problems with your memory or thinking, but only 50% of people who have self-reported problems with their memory would call mild cognitive impairment or self-reported problems with their thinking. Well, only about half of those people will go on to develop dementias. So it's really a tough one. I would honestly, say, I'm not a medical doctor, first of all, I should preface this, but I wouldn't personally worry about it. If you're a little bit older and you have some slight issues with your memory, I would try not to worry overly about it if it were me. When it becomes problematic is when these things progress and start getting worse and worse, I would say. So perhaps another tough question, um, what do we know about what age dementia typically begins? I mean, can we say anything about that? Well, there are lots of different kinds of dementias and they have different typical ages of onset. And even within the most common form of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, we classify it as late onset or early onset. So early onset is typically defined as earlier than 65 years of age. So earlier than 65 years of age would typically be classified as early onset. And some early onset dementias run in families, so they're caused by a gene mutation. And then in Alzheimer's disease, people with an onset after 65 are considered late onset or more sporadic forms, which aren't typically caused by gene mutations. So most of these dementias are age-related, so your age goes up the older you get, uh, but there's not a real precise age that you could say for all dementias would be the commonest age of onset. I suppose we could calculate it actually, but I don't know it if there is one that <laughs> people would use. So obviously we're talking about something incredibly complicated here then. So how is dementia diagnosed? 
So dementia diagnosis and keeping in mind that I'm a neuroscientist working in a lab, so this is not what I do day to day, but people who have problems with their memory or think they might be in the early stages of dementia can go and see a specialist, they can go to their GP, they can go see a specialist, and there will typically be a series of cognitive tests that you might do. We're getting more and more advanced in terms of there are uh, what we call biomarkers that are in development. So there are now tests that you can run on cerebrospinal fluid. So you have to have a spinal tap for that, and that's not very common. There are tests that you can run with a brain scan called a PET scan, which involves injecting a small amount of radioactive tracer and putting you in a scanner. And again, this is very expensive and is not done in a clinical diagnostic setting, but is used for research sort of clinical trial settings. And we're getting closer and closer to blood tests that can give you an idea about whether you're at high risk. They're not perfect yet, and they're not, as far as I'm aware, in routine clinical use in Britain. In the US, I think there are blood tests that can be done now, but they they don't give you a, a definitive answer. They give you a sort of an idea that you might have some of these pathological proteins in your brain that that cause Alzheimer's disease. So you touched on it slightly there, you know, as a neuroscientist, how do you go about studying dementia? You know, what's your your kind of day-to-day look like? So in my lab, we're trying to understand the fundamental brain changes that cause these different types of dementias. We do a lot of work on Alzheimer's disease. And one of the things that we're most excited about and that I've been uh, fascinated by since I was a graduate student is synaptic connections. So I don't know if you've heard of these, but your brain is made of uh, lots of different cell types. The neurons are the cells that fire in the network to help you with thinking, and they're the ones that do the work. And the neurons talk to each other via these synaptic connections. So you have 100 billion or so neurons in your brain, and they talk to each other through 100 trillion or so synapses. So this is a phenomenally complex system that's more synapses in your brain than stars in the Milky Way. So this is a beautifully complex system. And the wonderful thing about synapses is that they're very important for thinking and learning and memory. You make new synaptic connections and they get stronger as you learn and then you weaken your synaptic connections as you forget things. And these are very hard hit in Alzheimer's disease. So you can imagine a disease of memory is going to be severely affecting the synapses. And of all the things we can measure in the brain, and we haven't really talked about these yet, but you have these pathologies in the brain. And of all the things we can measure that goes wrong in the brain, the loss of these synaptic connections is the strongest predictor of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease. So in our lab, we're looking at what's happening to these synapses. Why are they dying? What's going on inside them? And we've developed some high-resolution techniques to look inside individual synapses and human postmortem brain tissue. And we've seen that you get tiny clumps of the two pathological proteins that have been used for a century to define Alzheimer's disease. They don't only clump up in these big aggregates that we've known about for decades and centuries, but they also accumulate in small amounts inside individual synaptic terminals where we think they're causing damage and causing this synapse loss. So that's one of the things we work on. And I'll try not to keep talking because we could I could literally talk about our lab work for hours. <laughs> that, no, that's great. So what else can we say then? I guess, what does a brain with dementia look like? You know, How can we say, take a scan of it and say, that person has dementia? So there's several different ways you can look at a person's brain while they're still alive and get some really good indications that they probably have Alzheimer's disease is the one we're most advanced on. The most obvious thing you can watch if you can get someone in a scanner over time is you can actually watch the brain shrink. So common to all these dementias, they're all what we call neurodegenerative. That means neurons are dying. And as the neurons die, the brain is shrinking. So you can watch over time the brain shrinking. And depending on where the brain is shrinking, you can start to classify what type of dementia it probably is. The hippocampus, which is this small part of the brain really important for memory, gets smaller in Alzheimer's disease early on. The frontal and temporal lobes get smaller in frontotemporal dementias. 
and things like in Parkinson's disease, you have different parts of the brain are degenerating. So we can look at the brain degeneration, but we can be a little bit more specific than that now with more sophisticated scans. So you can actually inject a PET tracer, which is positron emission tomography, this tiny radioactive molecule. You can inject PET tracers that are specific for different types of aggregates. So now we can inject an amyloid PET tracer into people, and we can see if you have amyloid plaques, which is one of the classic pathologies of Alzheimer's disease. And they're pretty good PET tracers for tau now. The other type of pathology that clumps in Alzheimer's patient brains is tau, neurofibrillary tangles. So tau is an interesting one, and in, we can do PET scans to see if you have tau pathology, but tau is not only in Alzheimer's disease, it also there are also a whole host of diseases called tauopathies, which have tau pathology without the amyloid, and they cause different kinds of dementias. So some frontotemporal dementias can be caused by tau pathology. You can have diseases like progressive supranuclear palsy or cortical basal degeneration that are caused by this tau clumping in the brain. And based on whether you also have amyloid or where the tau is showing up in the brain, we can start to get another idea of which type of dementia or which type of neurodegenerative disease you might have. So what do we know about how big a role genetics play in our risk of developing dementia? So that depends on which type of dementia. So genetics play a big role in some of these dementias and a small role in others. So if we start with Alzheimer's disease, since it's the most common cause, there are very rare familial forms of Alzheimer's disease that you inherit from your mom or your dad. Um, they are caused by mutations in genes that are causing that amyloid pathology to clump up. So you can have a mutation in the amyloid precursor protein, which is the big long protein that's then chopped into the little amyloid that sticks in the plaques. Or you can have mutations in presenilins 1 or 2, which are enzymes that chop the APP into the A-beta. And those cause Alzheimer's disease, the early onset familial forms that you can inherit. But of Alzheimer's disease cases, those are less than 5%, probably somewhere closer to 1%. So the vast majority of Alzheimer's cases aren't caused by familial genes that guarantee you'll get the disease. However, there are what we call risk genes. So there are a whole host of genes that can increase your risk of developing dementia but aren't a guarantee. The biggest one of these is called APOE, apolipoprotein E, epsilon 4. So you've got three different types of APOE gene in humans, 2, 3, and 4. And the E4, APOE4 gene, increases your risk by threefold if you inherit one copy of it, and by over tenfold if you inherit two copies of it. So that means that if you combine the risks of aging and APOE4, by the time you get into your 80s, if you have an APOE4 gene, you are very likely to have Alzheimer's disease. So you have these genes that can really drive up your risk. And there are common genes that can increase your risk a little bit. And it's it's quite difficult to give a precise number for me. Genetics is not my field. So I don't know the exact proportion of Alzheimer's cases where we think genes played some role. But what we can do now is say, we can give you a polygenic risk score. People can look at, the geneticists can look at all of your genes and say, you have this group of genes that means your risk of dementia is higher than average or lower than average. So that's being done. And it's really fascinating for research, for neuroscientists, because these genes have given us clues about what's causing the disease. So the amyloid cascade hypothesis, that amyloid the causative genes really drove the field for decades. And now we actually have drugs that can attack amyloid and slow disease progression. These are very recent. But beyond amyloid, the other host of genes that change your risk are largely expressed in 
cells in the brain called microglia and astrocytes, which aren't the neurons, but they're these immune cells and support cells. So that's taught us that it's not just the neurons that are important in this disease. We have to look at all the different cell types. And there's some fascinating research going on into how we might get at some of these early stages of disease that are more mediated by these other cell types. So that was something I was going to ask in a moment, but as we've just covered the kind of genetic risk there, it might be nice to have a look now at lifestyle factors. So, you know, what sort of things can we do or not do to lessen or greaten our risk of developing dementia? Yeah, that's a great question. So lifestyle factors are thought to play a fairly large role in the risk for developing dementias. If you look at what we call all-cause dementia, where we don't worry so much about the exact brain disease underlying, but we just say, do you have a dementia diagnosis? The best estimates are that about 40% of people with dementia could have prevented that with changes in lifestyle factors, which is a pretty stunning number. If you think about the number of people living with dementia worldwide, which is over 50 million, if 40% of those could have been prevented by lifestyle changes, that would make a massive difference to not only the people living with dementias, but of course, our public health systems. So to your question of what can we do, it's actually pretty common sense and what most people would have told you to do beforehand to keep your heart healthy. So things that increase your risk of dementia are things like a sedentary lifestyle, being overweight, smoking, sort of all the things that are bad for your heart and blood vessels tend to increase your risk of dementias. The things that are a little bit more new and a little bit more specific to your brain and not just your global health and your vascular health as well as your brain are social isolation and hearing loss have been associated with increased risk of developing dementia. So these were found, this is what we call epidemiology, where scientists look at huge populations of people and say, if you were socially isolated, was your risk of dementia higher or lower than people who weren't? And that can be very informative, but you have to understand that there's a limitation to this type of thing because we can't determine from this type of study whether the social isolation causes dementia, whether early stages of dementia cause you to isolate yourself or whether there's something unrelated, right? So it can't prove causality, but there is quite a lot of data from different studies indicating that those things are at least associated with an increased risk of dementias. Things that are associated with the decreased risk of dementia are almost the inverse. So a healthy lifestyle, eating well, Staying in education is actually very protective. So the longer you have stayed in formal education, the lower your dementia risk. And I think that one's fascinating because it comes back a little bit to the synaptic connections we were talking about. We think you're building a big, robust network that can resist the pathology in the brain for longer. So education and keeping both physically and socially and mentally active. So there were some recent data that are quite interesting. I got a call from another journalist about, do you think we should play chess? The prime minister suggests we need to be a chess nation to protect our brains. And while there's only a few studies that have directly looked at, at this type of thing, overall, the, the weight of evidence does suggest that keeping mentally and physically and socially engaged is probably very good for protecting your brain as you age. So let's move on then to now. So once dementia has been diagnosed, currently, how do we go about treating it? So up until very recently, there was nothing we could do for people with a dementia diagnosis that could slow the disease. We've had for a couple of decades several different treatments that help the symptoms. And most of these were targeting something called um, acetylcholine. So they were cholinesterase inhibitors and they boosted the amount of acetylcholine that stayed in your brain. And that helped make you feel a bit better. It helped reduce your symptoms a little bit. But what they didn't do is they didn't slow down this insidious progressive cognitive decline and the progression of the disease through the brain. Very recently, only in the last couple of years, drugs targeting that amyloid protein amyloid peptide have been approved in the US. And these have been shown in 
phase three clinical trials. So there's been a couple of different drugs now that have passed their long, long clinical trial period. And they had very similar results that if you put in an antibody that recognizes amyloid, it slows the progress of the disease by about 30%. And that's not a lot, right? We would love to have something that stops the disease and makes you even better if you could. But what it does is it actually slows the disease progression. So that's phenomenal for giving people hope that we can at least slow this disease. So you mentioned there's something called acetylcholine. Could you just uh, give us a brief overview of what that is and how it affects people with dementia? Yeah, so this is based on some fairly old science. So, uh, for example, in Parkinson's disease, what's known as the, the neurons that produce dopamine in the substantia nigra die. And if you replace the dopamine, people feel a bit better. That was well established for Parkinson's. And in Alzheimer's, originally people thought a very similar thing was happening with cholinergic neurons, that neurons that produce this neurotransmitter called acetylcholine were dying. And that if we replaced the acetylcholine, people would get better and the disease progression would stop. While it's true that you do lose those neurons, you're also losing the rest of your neurons. So it wasn't sufficient to stop the, the cognitive decline. And what we've learned more recently is that all the synapses and all the neurons pretty much in the network are vulnerable and are dying. So we needed to go and attack something earlier on. We can't just replace one neurotransmitter. We have to stop the damage. And that's what we're trying to do with things like the amyloid-directed therapeutics is remove the toxic protein and stop the damage to the brain so we could slow the disease progression. So a, a, a phrase you often hear in medicine is that prevention is better than cure. So I think uh, what I've done some reading about and I thought was a really interesting idea was how to stop dementia from arising years before symptoms are even present. That's a great point. So what we know about Alzheimer's disease, and it's we think probably common to several other types of dementia, is the changes in the brain start decades before you have symptoms. So it's important that we think about our lifestyle factors. If we could prevent 40% of dementias by leading healthier lifestyles, that would be good for all of us. But we also don't want to blame the 60% of people who couldn't have prevented their dementias, right? So we'd like to be able to prevent or treat dementia in everyone. So other types of prevention that have been considered are things like vaccines. It would be nice if we knew who was at high risk and we could vaccinate them against these pathologies so they wouldn't develop. There was one trial of an active vaccine. It didn't work. It actually, some of the people who were in the trial didn't have Alzheimer's because this happened before we had these better biomarkers and scans. So that, that mucked up the trial a bit. But it's also, you know, maybe... From the more recent trials, we've seen it's potentially unsafe at a large level, a large scale level, because these amyloid-directed therapeutics have some serious, rare but serious side effects. So at the moment, we don't have anything that can fully prevent Alzheimer's disease or the other dementias. But you're quite right, it would be amazing to be able to prevent these diseases or stop them early enough that you wouldn't have symptoms. Because in that couple of decades, while your brain is developing pathology before you have symptoms, your brain is just able to make up for the damage that's ongoing. Your brain is absolutely amazing. We, we have what you call plasticity. So if you have a little bit of damage, your brain can just make up for it. Like if you imagine people after a stroke, you might have met someone who had some difficulties with moving a part of their body, but with rehabilitation, they can get some movement back. And that's not because the brain cells came back. It's because your brain can rewire and make up for the damage. So if we could stop the damage early enough, you'd be able to be lead a, a perfectly normal life, we think, uh, and not have that progressive decline. So it's all about getting it early, not necessarily preventing everything, but getting it early enough to stop the disease in its tracks. Yeah, that's something I was going to ask, actually, as it is a, a progressive disease. You know, say we are able to develop some treatments that can, I mean, stop its progression. Say the next thing then, I guess, would be reversing the progression, or is that a naive question? No, it's not. I mean, 
ideally, if we could stop the disease process, your brain could recover a little bit. What's probably not going to be possible is if you're already in advanced stages of disease, so you've lost a lot of neurons and you've lost a lot of function, it would be difficult for your brain to make up for that with the normal plasticity mechanisms. Because what our brains are not very good at is making brand new neurons and putting them back in the right place and getting them to wire up. You can imagine you have neurons in your brain on the left side that are wired up. They have a connection that goes all the way over to the right side and connects very precisely to a lot of different cells in the network. And if that neuron dies, it's going to be very hard to get that sort of connectivity back. But if you can stop the massive amounts of neuron loss, you can make up for some of the loss with the existing network. So as long as we got it early enough, you could not only stop the progression, but your brain could recover a little bit, we think. This happens in mice. So in a mouse model that has the tau pathology, if we stopped the disease by lowering the tau expression, the mice not only stopped getting worse, their memories got a bit better. So, you know, the, the mammalian brain can do this to a certain extent. So, if we caught it early enough, the hope is you wouldn't only stop the disease, but you might get a little bit better as your brain recovered. One final question then, by way of summing up, you know, how optimistic as a researcher are you for the future of dementia treatment and research? I'm very optimistic. I've been in the field of dementia research since about 2004, so going on 20 years. And for the first 10 to 15 years, I have to say, our, our annual meetings all over the world were quite depressing. We would see another failed clinical trial. It's always been a fascinating and interesting thing to study, but only in the past few years have we started to see that some of this fundamental neuroscience research that we've been doing all over the world for decades and decades is finally now translating into treatments that are slowing the disease. And I think that these new treatments, even though they're not perfect and they have risks, they really are going to open the door to hope and more funding. So they bring hope to the people living with dementia, hope to those of us in the labs that have been squirreling away for years trying to come up with ways of helping people living with dementias, and hope for the funders. Because one of the things about dementia research is we've been chronically underfunded compared to other biomedical fields like cancer. And if we have the best minds and enough finance, we will make even faster progress. So I think that those three things, the hope from those three groups is really going to drive the field forward. So I'm very optimistic. That was Tara Spires-Jones, Professor at the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Edinburgh and President of the British Neuroscience Association. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. The current issue of BBC Science Focus is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or download a digital copy from your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.